Welcome to the Secret Life Podcast. Tell me your secret. I'll tell you mine. Sometimes you have to go through the darkness to reach the light. That's what I did. After 12 years of recovery in sex and love addiction, I finally found my soulmate, myself. Please join me in my novel, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, a four-time bestseller on Amazon. It's a brutal, honest, raw, gnarly ride, but hilarious at the same time. Check it out now on Amazon. Welcome to Secret Life Podcast. I'm Brianne Davis-Gan. Today, I'm pulling back the curtains of all kinds of human secrets. We'll hear about what people are hiding from themselves and others. You know, those deep, dark secrets we probably want to go to our grave with, or those lighter, funnier secrets that are just plain embarrassing. Really, the how, what, when, where, and why of it all. My guest today is Katie. Now, here's the big question. Dun, dun, dun. What is your secret? So my secret is when I was a college athlete, I was simultaneously dealing with an eating disorder. Whoa. Now, when you say eating disorder, can you tell us your behaviors? Because there's different types of eating disorders. Like what was your pattern during that time in college? Because you were a really successful athlete. Yeah. So I I played volleyball in college and I distinctly remember there was, you know, kind of what led into it is this whole, this, this pressure of, you know, what you're supposed to look like, how you're supposed to fit in clothes, especially being a female athlete. I think that pressure is tenfold. Mm -hmm. Um, And I vividly remember we had at one point they do, and I don't know if they still do this, but they had like this fat pincher. It's a way to sort of test your body mass, like your, your body fat percentage. And I remember standing in the athletic training room and, you know, I'm in this line of like 12 other girls. And I like, we're all in like basically nothing sports bra, spandex, and we're standing side by side and they're just moving down the line, just pinch, pinch, pinch. And then they, you know, they call us into this room and they say, you know, your fat percentage is X. And like, I don't know what that means, but then they, you know, they say, here's where you should be as a female. And that's where the spiral started for me was I was, I think maybe 2% above where I should have been. Which is probably nothing, right? In the percentage factor. As I've gotten older and as I've looked into it, it varies so much from person to person. I don't know how any one person can say you're supposed to be here. This is where you're supposed to fit. Um, So from that moment on, I pushed myself into this spiral of consuming negative calories. And the way I kept track of that in my head was for everything I ate, I had to burn off at least that. Wow. So I was doing, you know, if I ate breakfast, I would keep exactly how many calories were in what I just ate. And I'd go straight to the gym and I'd run it off until I was at zero. So I was really pushing for like a net calorie balance of zero at all times. Really? Yeah. So, and I did that, um, that was in the spring of my freshman year and I carried that behavior through the summer and then, you know, through that whole next season. So that was, and that, that lasted until someone noticed that probably lasted four or five months until someone picked up on what I was doing. Like what was your average, what would you eat in the morning and then hit the gym for how long? Um, so they made these, they were like protein bars. They were like 350 calories a bar. I'd cut it in half, eat that, go to the gym. So I'm at, oh, math is not my strong suit anymore. You could, it's weird how like I was ever good at this really, but like, you know, I cut it in half. I have that and I'd go straight to the gym and I'd burn off at least that plus more. 
So like really working myself into this negative calorie balance, I'd say at my lowest point, I wasn't consuming any more than 450 calories a day. And you probably killed it in the gym on top of it. Yeah. And I mean, in reality, when you're a college athlete, you're burning a couple thousand calories per practice. So, I mean, it's, it was, it was a struggle, but I fed off that feeling of empty, that, that feeling of being empty. I yearned for it. I hated eating. So for me, being empty was a success. That is so fascinating that you say that being empty, because I feel like the whole reason we do these things, and I also had an eating disorder at a very young age. And I think it's what society puts on us and, and, you know, you getting pinched that fat pinch. And I remember looking in the mirror and just never being happy and feeling empty and you Mm -hmm. like yearn for that empty feeling. Yeah. And it's, it is such a weird dichotomy because on one hand you do feel empty, Mm -hmm. but I also, I wanted to, I think I wanted to match physically what I was feeling emotionally. So, and like that, you know, those, those body image issues were years in the making. Of course it doesn't just happen overnight, but like, you know, you, you hear, especially as a girl in high school, you hear all the little things that like we nitpick at each other and like, this isn't quite right. Or like, this is just a little too big or like those don't fit quite right. So that, you know, this had been years in the making. And then I was finally just pushed to that breaking point where I, you know, was supposed to be at the top of what I was, I was supposed to be at the top of my game. I was supposed to be, you know, like I had reached the pinnacle of like, you know, all of this hard years and years of hard work to reach this point. And it actually, it was that exact thing that knocked me all the way down. Wow. Yeah. And that happens a lot. We see, you know, people at their top of their game and then they just crash and burn. Like they can't mm-hmm. handle the pressure because they're empty inside. You need more than, you know, the perfection of the outside. Right. For our, for our listeners, can you talk about those couple of moments, maybe growing up that led to this turn of behavior? Just, I'm sure as women and listeners, you can all identify. Yeah. So for me, it was always my legs. That was always my, like hated them. They were always much more developed muscularly than other girls. I was, I vividly remember in, you know, second and third grade having adults comment on how big my calves were. Um, And I don't think at the time, you know, I don't think looking back, they said it to be demeaning or demoralizing but as a kid you pick up on that that like they're not supposed to look this way this is you know this is unnatural you know kids started getting wind of you know that my calves were big or my my quads were strong um and you know that developed this it's this awful nickname i like will never forget it i was called man legs from the time i was in like third grade all the way through high school and so you know which is weird considering I, I like played a sport where I wore virtually nothing on my legs. You'd think I would yeah. wear something that was a little more covered up, um, but I wouldn't wear shorts. I wouldn't, you know, I, I never wore shorts because I was always so convinced that there was something so horribly wrong with my legs the way they were. So that sort of, you know, I, I hated the way I looked in skirts. I hated the way I looked, you know, in a bathing suit just because I thought people were staring and I thought they were these like, you know, massive, beastly looking, disgusting. Like that's just kind of the the picture that was painted for me that I grasped onto. Yeah. So it kind of, it started for me at a very young age. And I don't think, I always sort of turned it into a joke or acted like I didn't care because that's the way you sort of deal with it when it's difficult. And then I finally, you know, got to this point where I was like, 
you know, my legs being like this allowed me to be an elite athlete. Like I, I am able to do more than other women because I am strong and that, you know, this idea of being strong didn't become a thing. I don't feel like until recently, it was always like, like being strong and fit did not become this like idea of what it like, you know, this is not the like society's idea of like being beautiful was not being fit and strong. It was being tiny, skinny size, triple zero never fit that mold. So for me, that was always like a really difficult pill to swallow. And then, you know, sort of having all of those worst fears confirmed when you have that person telling you like, you actually, you know, you're above average in terms of like body fat percentage when compared to normal women. That's when I was just like, I can't fake it anymore. Like I, like all of these things I've been feeling for so long are now just confirmed. And now I need to get myself out. You need to take control of the Mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about the legs aspect, even now I see, you know, people obsessed with that gap between their legs. Yeah. That thigh gap. Thigh gap is, I knew there had to be a name for it, but Uh people are obsessed with that thigh gap. And I think, you know, Instagram and social media is taking it to extreme. Like they take pictures of it and you're just feeling for these younger teens and people that have to like see this image that they probably are never going to obtain. And those images usually are all filtered. So it's just really frustrating that in society, we're still dealing with this. Totally. And I'm, we didn't even really grow up in the age of social media like it is today. So I imagine, you know, for as awful as I was feeling about myself, I can only imagine the difficulties that teenage girls today are facing because it's it's tenfold. Everything's magnified. Everything. Your your image is based in how you present on social media. And that's like not just for your body. That's for relationships. How many likes you get. Exactly. Everything like your entire image is, is encompassed in what how you present on social media. So I cannot if <laughs> I mean, I commend girls at, at this day and age because I couldn't do it. So. Oh, I couldn't do it. I said I'd probably kill myself. I'm yeah. no joke. I said yeah. I would kill myself if I had to grow up in this time period. Because you remember you used to like compare yourself to everyone in your your core group of friends or, or high mm-hmm. school, your high school class. Now you're comparing yourself to everybody in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And how damaging that can be if you don't have the tools. Yeah to understand that we're all different. We're all beautiful in our own way. And we all add something and nobody is better than anybody else for the way they look. Exactly. So um, while we're talking about this, I always like to look at what seven deadly sins that the secrets involve. Now, I have to say sins for me is not a bad thing. It's a a part of humanity and, and, and human behavior. So I just look at it as like, oh, where do they tie into? So we have pride, greed, lust, gluttony, envy, anger, and sloth. Where in the secret you kept did your secret lie and why? I mean, I think if I'm thinking right off the bat, I could, you know, kind of stick it in anywhere. I think for me, probably pride. Mm. I didn't I didn't tell anyone. I didn't want people to know I was struggling, but I was also doing things and acting in a way where I was very much crying out for help. Yeah. You know, I think also when you're when you're looking at being an athlete in college, there is a sense of greed because you are you're fighting for your spot on, you know, the court, the field, wherever it is you are really like, you will do whatever you have to do to whoever you have to do it to, Mm. to find your spot. And for me, it was, I was doing, 
you know, what I thought was going to make me stand out. And I don't mean stand out in a, in a way that, you know, that people would normally think they're going to stand out when I, when you're, when you're talking about being an athlete, like I didn't want to stand out athletically. I wanted to stand out in terms of physique. I wanted someone to look at me and go, she's fit. She's like, you know, she's strong. She's capable. And for some reason that in a weird way was tied to how I, you know, how I navigated this eating disorder while trying to like maintain high standards for myself. I mean, I set up, I set myself up for failure, which is eventually what happened. Um, I failed. But I think for me, but I, when you say that, I have to correct you. I think you won. I think your ism failed. Your your addict behavior of this way to control failed. But you won. It's it's sometimes you have to get to a place where it gets so bad that you're like you said, you're crying out for help. So what was that moment? What happened when you supposedly failed? Which I don't think she failed. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think I like I misspoke. And I mean, when I failed, I'm I'm eternally grateful for that failure because yes. I don't know where I would have gone had I not failed. Had I not hit that rock bottom, I don't know if I would be here. And that's the truth. Yeah. I was in such a dangerous place health-wise. Um, I, you know, developed an arrhythmia, a heart arrhythmia, because my body was so malnourished throughout this time that I was doing this to myself. Um, I will never forget. I collapsed at practice. We were in the middle of practice and I collapsed. And that was the first time that my coaches figured out what was going on. That was the first time my parents figured out what was going on. And it all sort of came crashing down. I remember sitting in, you know, the training room and I was hooked up to like fluids and I was, you know, the, the whole nine yards because my, my body was literally failing. My, my body was shutting itself down because I was so malnourished and I was competing at such a high level. You know, I should have been, I'm, I'm lucky in the, the way that it happened. I'm lucky that I wasn't, you know, I could have had a heart attack. Yeah. I was just about to say you could have had a heart attack. I could have had a heart attack and I didn't, um, you know, I, I was close, but I didn't. And I think that facing that reality of having to explain myself to everyone after that point, um, was probably one of the more difficult things I've ever had to do in my life. And, you know, that having to have that conversation, I think the hardest person for me to have that conversation with was my dad. Mm. So, you know, sitting there and you're attached to, you know, an IV with fluids and my dad is sitting there and he is, you know, for all intents and purposes, he's the strong silent type. He doesn't, there's not a lot of emotion there, but there is this unspoken bond that the two of us have and having to explain to him why I was doing what I was doing without really at that time having the wherewithal to put that into words. I was still, I mean, I was so young. I was, you know, I think I was 19 or 20, 20, 19 or 20 when this all sort of happened. So not having that perspective to be able to explain to him why I felt the need to do this. Yeah. Um, that was the hardest conversation I ever had to have. And that it really, it changed our relationship for the better, but for a long time, it was really difficult to be around my family. Do you think in having this secret, you not only harmed your relationship with your father, but where else did you harm? It seems like things were out of whack for a while. Yeah. I mean, I, when I say a while, I mean, that's like, you know, it still comes in waves even to this day. So, you know, things were out of whack. I mean, things were really bad. I would probably say 
maybe a year, like a full year of, you know, in and out of nutritionist's office and the doctor's office, trying to get my body back to just this, you know, baseline level of healthy, because I was, I had done so much irreversible damage. I, I, there was, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of lingering health concerns that I may be facing because of what I did to myself, having to sit down and have those conversations and, you know, feeling the eyes on you when you're at a family meal and everyone's sort of watching to see if you finish what's on your plate. And like, you know, it's that look of like, you've still got like two or three bites. It's, I very, it felt very much like I was a child. Like you can't have dessert until you finish your vegetables. That's how I sort of felt. And I think it all came from a place of so much love and compassion. And I'm very fortunate to have the family that I do that really, you know, was on my side from the very beginning. Um, even though they didn't understand it, they really tried to help me navigate it. And, you know, having a younger brother, having him watch all of this was really difficult. And I think that it was more difficult for him than he lets it on to be because he saw me sort of, you know, you sort of look at an older sibling, like they've got it figured out. Like, this is what I'm like they've, they've done it right. Um, and I had to sort of backtrack and be like, you know, you don't need to go down this road. And he's fortunate that, you know, I don't, I don't think men face the same stigma that women do. I'm not saying men don't face stigma because I think they, they do, especially, you know, as athletes, they have this, there's a certain expectation of, you know, how good are you? what does your body look like? You know, that's like, we, we really, everything is so sex driven. So like, you know, is your body sexually desirable to someone else outside of the confines of being an athlete? And I think that for, for me, I didn't want him or anyone else for that matter. I didn't want anyone to go down that road of, I have to look like this in order to perform or in order to be considered at the top of my game, if that makes sense. That that completely makes sense. I mean, as an actor, I everything you're saying, I identify with because you have to look a certain way and be this certain thing and what people put on you, the image. So it, I mean, even when we walk down the street or there's images that are, are thrown in our face. So I really mm-hmm. think in any business, you can understand, like you have to look a certain way to, to get the attention or get ahead or use our body or how Mm -hmm. we look, which is something Mm -hmm. we have barely any control of in the first place, you know, how are you managing now? Like we both said, it doesn't go away. You still, you know, sometimes when I eat a donut, which I love donuts, I still later, I'm like, oh, I got to work out. Like, instead of just chilling about it. So how, how did you move forward in the future? Um, you know, lots of therapy. I I had to educate myself. And I think especially it all sort of came full circle, especially like in today's world where like we are being pushed to educate ourselves on, you know, so many different facets. Like this for me was the first time that I was like, I don't know it all. And I need to step back and really educate myself. Um, I think the hardest part is fighting with logic. So logically, you know, what you're doing is horribly unhealthy. For me, it was really working with incredible teams of nutritionists and doctors and therapists and my coaches and my family to really sort of rework how I responded to that voice because you know that voice never goes away it's how you respond to it it's the, it's the way it's the way you react when you're when that voice is you know really trying to drive you to do something else so that it, it is a thing I still deal with to this day um 
it's not nearly as bad. I do have an incredible support system that I'm so grateful for. But I think that for, for me, as odd as it sounds, working out for as much of a problem as it was for me, you know, in an unhealthy way, for me, working out is the thing that keeps me sane today. Mm. So it's sort of, it's sort of shifted its meaning to me is, you know, I don't need to burn off what I'm eating. I just need to blow off some steam and like whatever, like, you know, I don't get on a scale. Um, I don't look at calories and foods that I'm eating. I just, I try, I go on how I'm feeling. So if I feel, you know, if I feel like I'm, I need to, you know, go for a run or go to the gym, um, then I do that, but I do it in a way where no matter if I've done, you know, three hours worth of working out or 45 minutes or whatever it is, I've done something. And that for me has to be, I have to pat myself on the back and celebrate like the small victories. Like, you know, you went to the gym and you worked out and you did something and something is better than nothing. You're not starving yourself and learning to change my relationship with food has been probably the biggest, you know, the the biggest learning curve for me is, you know, food is something that fuels your body to do all the incredible things you want to do. But depriving yourself, you know, of basic sustenance, you're setting yourself up for, it's hard to say where it could go. It could go really, it could go really, really poorly. Really changing my relationship with food has probably been the hardest, the most, the most difficult thing to navigate. I completely identify on so many levels. And thank you so much for sharing this. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it. And it's very brave to, you know, I did these things and this is how I grew from them. And I, I, I just want to say thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. And if you want to be on the show, please email me at secretlifepodcast at iCloud.com. Until next time. Thanks again for listening to the show. Please subscribe, rate, share, or send me a note at secretlifepodcast.com. And if you like to check out my book, head over to secretlifenovel.com or Amazon to pick up a copy for yourself or someone you love. Thanks again. See you soon.